While the United States and Israel share similar values, our internal politics quite differ. In Israel, each issue from social policies to economics is often built around security and identity. Due to this, right-wing or conservative policies do not necessarily mean the same thing in Israel as they do in the U.S. But according to my guest today, Ron Bar Yoshefat, the deputy director of the Kohelet Policy Forum, Israel needs a taste of American free market conservatism. Despite Israel having a strong history of socialist policies, Ron continues to push for economic and political reform. You're listening to The Cassie Dillon Show. Ron, thanks for coming on. Sure, happy to be here. So how about you tell us a little bit about you? How did you get to where you are today? You're very prominent in Israel and politics, but how did you get there? Well, how far back do you want me to begin? In high I school? want you to go very far back. Very far back. Your first, your first introduction to politics, whether that was something in current events going on in Israel or what got you into it? So actually in elementary school, people would make fun of me for being very hawkish. So I What does think- that mean? Um, I was very pro-right wing when I was in elementary school. How old are we talking? Um, I'll put it like this. I sent a letter to uh, former Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin who was assassinated. I sent him a, um, a letter when I was in the fifth grade saying, or sixth grade, I told him, you have to stop the peace process, otherwise you will be hurt. So yeah. <laughs> You said, otherwise you will be hurt. Like, yeah, no, I didn't Like, threaten. you're not threatening. No, not threatening. I just said, I, I thought that people will hurt him. And, um, and I told him that, yeah, it did happen. And I told him I was assassinated. And I told him that uh, in the letter that uh, I think it's a really bad uh, concept. And, you know, I gave the letter to my mom. She thought, oh, that's really cute. You're sending a letter to the prime minister. She didn't know what was the content of oh, the letter. No. I was like, you really have to stop this peace process. I'm really against it. It's really bad. Um, did you get so a response? He actually did. I got a letter oh. back. And he said, sometimes uh, in difficult times, we have to just bite our um, lips. That's a phrase in Hebrew. Um, and, and understand it because of the difficulties of the situation. We have to go forward. And it's good for the people of Israel. I obviously disagree. I hated the Oslo Accords as a kid, so I think I was pretty much politically involved since I can remember myself. And so in Israel, there's mandatory service. So once you graduated high school, what did you do? Yeah, so I'll take one step back. In high school, I was focused on two things. One, you don't see this on me right now because I'm out of shape, but I used to be the national champion for MMA. So I spent most of my high school time doing uh, MMA. And the second thing I did was preparing for the army because... After high school in Israel, you go to the army. I began my army service actually at the pilot's course. Um, I never wanted to be a pilot, but I felt that if you can, then you should. And I was good at everything apart from this tiny detail, which was actually flying the plane. I was horrible (laughs) at flying the plane, so they kicked me out of there. And I uh, began my service again in a combat elite special forces unit called Maglan. And what year are we talking here? We're talking about the time of the second intifada, which was... um, between 2000 to 2005, and my service was 2002 to 2005. And so what exactly were you doing at this time? Obviously, things are very tense in Israel, but what sort of combat did you see? So literally, I captured terrorists. I was a hand-to-hand combat expert, and I would get all the information about the person that we're trying to capture. I knew his name, what he did, what he plans on doing, what he had for breakfast the day before, and I would uh, capture terrorists. Um, And my... Usually what I was worried about is that that terrorist might have explosives on him. So when I was grabbing a terrorist, I had to make sure that his hands are not free to pull any uh, wires that, is, that are connected to explosives. Is there one incident of capturing a terrorist that really sticks with you? 
There are a few. I think that my first time capturing a terrace was very unique for me because I remember I, uh, I jumped on the guy and uh, I pinned him against the wall, making sure that he cannot pull any... Um, he didn't have any explosives, but he, I couldn't know. Um, and I felt like my leg was shaking. And I thought to myself, that's very odd because put aside the fact that I'm in the IDF and there, there's backup and everything, I'm the former national champion for MMA. I can really beat this guy. Why am I so shaking? So I, I did what I thought was uh, the right thing to do. I like made sure that my muscle is uh, pulled as much as I can. And it took me a few seconds to realize that he was shaking. And he was shaking so hard that it made my leg shake. I, I thought I was shaking. He was the one that was shaking and it, it moved my leg. So it made me realize that, you know, these guys are terrorists and they're very good at killing innocent civilians, but they're actually scared when you, they see an IDF soldiers jumping on them. So I do want to start talking about conservatism because you are a conservative, but I want to back up first to Zionism because I think that's a good place to start. Um, and part of Zionism is the, the Israeli military, and they have a very bad reputation thanks to the media. I was wondering what you think about how the IDF is perceived and how it's different than it actually is. So the main reason why I'm active in Israel advocacy is because of what you just described. I literally um, risked my life to make sure that there's as minimal collateral damage as possible. If Israel was as horrible as sometimes people try to portray it, I would not have a conflict. The IDF can take over Judea and Samaria and Gaza in a couple of hours. Um, and I'm sure that my mom would rather have the Israeli Air Force strike down a house where the terrorist lives instead of me going there in the middle of the night, uh, exposing myself, physically capturing him with my hands, worrying that he might explode on me. Um, so that's why I got involved. Um, I, I think that the IDF is actually the most moral army in the world. We have people who are Jews, Christians, Muslims who serve, which really kind of undertake the uh, whole argument from the other side when you have Arab Muslims who are high-ranking officers and they serve to defend the state of Israel. Um, so, but yeah, I know we have a bad reputation. I think it's a mistreatment of the media and it bothers me a lot. And Zionism also has a bad reputation in some parts of the world. What does Zionism mean to you? Zionism for me is the right of the Jewish people to have sovereignty over themselves in the land of Israel. That's what Zionism is for me. So how does Zionism approach the Palestinians or the Arabs living in the region? So, uh, yeah, I don't refer to the uh, Arabs in Judea and Samaria and Gaza as a nation, so I call them Arabs. Um, I don't think that they have a narrative. I always argue that they have a negative. They took the Zionist story and then they said, that's our story. It's kind of strange. Explain that. I'll, I'll tell you this. In less than, uh, less than 100 years ago, if you would go to New York and you would see people holding sign that said, Free Palestine, it meant give it to the Jews. Um, the Palestinian Philharmonic is the Jewish Philharmonic. Palestine Bank was the Jewish bank owned by the Zionist movement. Um, Palestine Post is today's Jerusalem Post. Everything with the name Palestine meant Jews. And when people called the Arabs of Judea and Samaria or Israel proper at that time, when, when they wanted to refer to them, they meant they, they said Arabs. Um, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, was created in 1964. Before that, no one thought of the Arabs as Palestinians. Today, the Arabs claim that Israel took over a state, an existing territory that was called Palestine. Uh, colonial Jews from Europe, I don't think they look very European, um, came from Europe and took over that land. Um, Judea and Samaria, uh, we had a kingdom in Israel, in Judea and in Samaria. And the, the reason why I'm called a Jew is because the last tribe that was kicked out of the land of Israel was the tribe of Judea. 
um, when the Romans took over, they changed the name to uh, Philistine, which, by the way, literally means intruder uh, or invader. <laughs> um, and there's no connection between the Philistines, who are the biblical um, enemies of the Israelites, and today's Palestinians. And they're uh, doing a great job in rebranding it and pretending like they've been there for a very, very long time. And that's why I argue it's not a narrative, it's a negative. It's, uh, in many college campuses, I see these four maps where you can see the map of Palestine in 1946 before Israel took over. And we had the Independence War 47 to 49 and 48 in the middle, we created the state. Um, and it shows like how Jews took over different part of that territory. Now, it's kind of amazing because if you don't know the shape of the state of Israel, it looks like a schnitzel kind of. <laughs> um, the reason why we have this shape is because of wars and peace treaties and giving up land and taking more land and giving up land. And after all this time, that's what we have. to have this schnitzel-looking shape of a country, which is really not the shape that the Jewish people hope to have. And what the Arabs are saying, oh, yeah, that shape exactly, that was our state. You took our, I'm like, I have better chance in winning the lottery five times in a row than saying that this shape was your, and I always say this, give me the name of the prime minister of the state of Palestine prior to 1948. Give me the name of, I don't know, a mayor from, from Palestine prior to, you wouldn't find anything. In fact, I'll, I will give you all of the content of my wallet if you can give me one thing that is Palestinian and not Jewish prior to 1948. So you're saying that... The Palestinian identity was reactionary to the Zionist movement in the region. Uh, furthermore, I think that if all the Jews decide to leave Israel and go to Manhattan, the Arabs of Judea and Samaria and Gaza will not create a state. I'll give you four reasons. Number one, I've never heard of a liberation movement that has refused a deal. Um, we've had so many negotiations with the Arabs and they kept saying no. We offered 98% of Judea and Samaria. Um, if the Kurds would be offered 70% of Greater Kurdistan. would absolutely take it. Yeah. We, the Jews, accepted 50% of the 30% that was originally given to us. So we, we accepted 15% of Greater Israel. Um, number two, um, the PLO was created in 1964. In 1964, Israel had no control over Judea and Samaria or Gaza. Jordan illegally occupied Judea and Samaria, and Egypt had martial law over Gaza. At that time, the PLO said, we want to take down Israel. And literally, in their platform, they said, we're not going to, of course, we're not going to have a state in Jordan or Gaza. So what has changed? Thirdly, they have the claim of return. So I believe that Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. So that means that I'm very happy if Jews move to Israel. They want to create a state, so they say, in Judea and Samaria, but they want to have all the Arabs move to where? Israel proper. Which is really odd. It's like me saying Israel is a nation instead of the Jewish people, so let's have all the Jews in Turkey. Doesn't make any sense. And fourthly, when I know that Mahmoud Abbas Abu Mazen, the head of the PA, says that if he'll have one less dollar, he will invest that dollar into terrorism instead of building a state, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. It's not a peace partner. It's not a peace partner, by no means. So I want to push you on another radical idea that I witnessed in Israel my last time there. Um, what do you think about the possibility of a third temple? So I'm not very mystical, so I don't, I'm not expecting the third temple to come and drop from heaven. I'll tell you what I do think about the whole issue of Temple Mount. Temple Mount is the one place in Israel where you don't have Israel's sovereignty, and it's the one place in Israel where you don't have freedom of religion. If you're a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian, vegan, I don't care. In Israel, you can do whatever you want. You can pray wherever you want. You can go wherever you want. On, on the um, Temple Mount, if you're a Jew or a Christian, you're not allowed to pray. 
And I believe in democracy, and I think that's horrible. Um, so that's what bothers me. Now, and, and to explain that further, when I was up there, we were followed around by um, Jordanian police, the walks. Yeah. We were followed around by them, and we were made sure that we didn't call it the Temple Mount. We were, they were making sure that we weren't praying. You're not allowed to go up with Bibles or crosses on your neck. Um, Jews who do go up in religious attire have to be escorted by several yeah. IDF soldiers. Or not IDF soldiers. Not yeah. IDF soldiers. It's, it's the walk. It's the Jordanians. Um, no, no, I'm talking about that they're escorted by Israelis. The Israeli uh, security. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's usually like two security guards for every Jew from what I've seen. So yeah, you have to declare if you're a tourist or a Jew. Because if you're a Jew, you get... So it's, again, in my perspective, uh, in the year 2019, it's really horrible. It's almost humiliating. It's very humiliating. Uh, it's not just that. Jews who are observant, before they drink, they bless over the water. Okay? Um, I'm sure Christians can relate. Sometimes Christians, before they have dinner, they, they say, you know, they thank, the God for, they thank God for the food that they eat. So it means that a Jew who's observant cannot drink water because they're not allowed to mumble, the, you know, th thanking God for the water. Um, and that's annoying because if you've been there, you know it's really hot, there's no AC, and some people get thirsty. So let's take any other place in Israel, any other place apart from Temple Mount, which is under Israel's sovereignty. No one cares if you're a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, or vegan. You can do whatever you want, you can pray whatever you want, you can, you can say whatever you want. We believe in freedom of speech. Um, but when you go to Temple Mount, you're being, um, there's like a selection to decide which group you are. And you get metal detected if you're not Muslim. Muslims don't get metal detected to go up there, but I was searched. Muslim can play soccer. Literally, they play soccer on Temple Mount. They uh, they do whatever they want. And if you're a Christian or a Jew, then you have a different treatment. And you're only allowed up there at certain times of day. True. Uh, there's limitations. There's there's no freedom of religion. No freedom of religion and no freedom of speech. Um, so that so in my understanding, the way I see it, because you, the original question was about um, Third Temple, I would love to have, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not going to give uh, uh, an answer to the question, should Jews go there or not? Um, some rabbis say Jews should not go there, that's not my field of expertise, but I will tell you this, I think Israel needs to decide on who can and who cannot go, because right now when it's not under Israel's sovereignty, there's no human rights. And by the way, I think that is the, that is the key point that I have when people say that they care about um, human rights. I'm like, so I want to understand one thing. An Arab who lives in Haifa, right? He has the same rights as a Jew that lives in Haifa. Israel proper, everyone's, everyone's equal under the law. It's a country governed by law. An Arab who lives in Eastern Jerusalem, which is not completely under Israel's sovereignty, has, you know, his life is not as great. An Arab who lives in Judea and Samaria, it's even worse. And an Arab who lives in Gaza, it's way worse. And the main difference is how much Israel's sovereignty do you have? The more Israel's sovereignty that you have, the more prosperity, the more security, and the more human rights that you have for Jews and for Arabs. So I always wonder, how is it that the progressive side seems to be uh, promoting this concept of a new state that has zero respect for women? And now they also, um, the PA just announced that there's no gatherings of LGBT things at all. There's you, no, you will be arrested. There's no LGBTQ. There's no women's rights. There's no rights for anyone. It's a it's a Judenrein, like it's a Jew-free state. And I never understood why would progressive people support it. I once saw when I was giving a lecture at uh, University of Washington in Washington State, um, a, a girl holding a sign that said, Jewish lesbians for Hamas. And I'm like, if you're, if you're a Jew under Hamas, they will murder you. If you're a lesbian under Hamas, they will murder you. She had purple spiky hair. Like, because of your haircut, they will murder you. You're rooting for the wrong side. You're on the wrong side of history. Exactly. Well, now I want to shift to conservatism and Zionism. So 
Zionism began way before most people think. It, it began in the late 1800s. Um, and most people don't realize that its roots weren't very religious. They were very socialist in nature. There was a lot of persecution going on in Europe at the time. And people came over to Israel and they established these, these small communities, these kibbutz, mm-hmm. kibbutzim. And what they're doing here is they're farming and they're living these very socialist lives. But now you, as a modern day Israeli consider yourself a conservative. Yes. So how do you reconcile that with your state, which has started with socialist roots? All right. So first first of all, I'll say this. Zionism actually began, I think, since the destruction of the Second Temple. Um, and I'm going to, again, because I don't, I'm not very um, connected to mysticism, I'm going to say creation of the world to First Temple, matter of faith. First temple to second temple, we keep digging up stuff we don't know. Second temple is history. It's not even my history, it's world history. Uh, And I think Zionism began there because Jews wanted to be back in Israel and have sovereignty. But the Zionist movement, the modern Zionist movement, did begin in the 18th century. Now, Zionism can be divided into two main spheres. One is political Zionism, meaning I want to get the world to be on my side and support the concept of um, Jewish sovereignty. I think Herzl, Theodor Herzl was um, probably the most known one, um, Jabotinsky. And the other is practical Zionism, which was what you're referring to is more socialist Zionism. Well, perhaps we should explain who Theodor Herzl is. Theodor Herzl was the founding father of modern day Zionism. Um, he was a Jew, came from Europe. He um, he was upset about the anti-Semitic uh, incidents that, he saw, that he's seen in Europe. And he said, we need to do something. And his conclusion at the end was that the Jews need a state of their own. And he thought that if the Jews would have a state of their own, then the world would not be so upset with Jews. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I don't think he was correct about that. Um, But that was one stream of Zionism. There's also religious Zionism, another stream of Zionism that said um, this is a part of the the, uh, uh, recreation of the Messiah and whatever. So that's also part of Zionism. And you had... uh, um, spiritual Zionism that basically said Jews, if a few Jews will be in Israel, they will be the beacon of light to the rest of the Jews in the world. And there was also practical Zionism, which basically said, we're going to come to Israel and we're going to build a perfect society. And, and their concept of a perfect society was a socialist society. So they won. Um, they won because a lot of it has to do with the Holocaust. Sometimes people say, because of the Holocaust, Israel was created. I say it's the exact opposite. Because Israel now exists, you cannot have a second Holocaust. Because you'll have a place that will take, down, take the Jews in case something happens. But the issue with the Holocaust is that a lot of the Jews who were in Europe were actually more close to um, political Zionism. They were more um, capitalistic in their approach. But they were murdered. And a lot of the Jews who came to Israel were more socialist. So they won the debate. Uh, when Israel was created. So Israel was created as a socialist state. Uh, it means that the government interfered in everything, and that pretty much changed in 1977 when... But let's talk about how far that went, okay? Let's explain the kibbutzim culture and how radical it is. Extremely radical kibbutzim. By the way, it, it, it failed in Israel. It doesn't exist anymore. But yeah. in the beginning, it meant that people are sharing everything. They said, we have an ideology, which is... Um, a secular concept, Jews need to be in Israel. We, we need to work uh, and farm and build and do everything with our hands because one of the stereotypes that Jews had in Europe is that they're not uh, productive. So they said in Israel, we're going to be very, very productive and sharing is caring. So <laughs> basically they shared literally everything. Even the children were raised 
um, not by their parents, but they were people who were in charge of the children. So, so the children were taken after childbirth and put yes. into little children houses and raised yes. by you certain had people. Children houses, and they were not raised with the parents. They had parent time, but basically the the children were raised by themselves. Also, egalitarianism between men and women, because everything has to be completely equal. At that time, they still believed in only two genders, but uh, but equality between men and women. Um, and they, yeah, they, they shared everything. You were not you were not allowed to have private property in your home. Um, yeah, very socialist. We'll be right back. In 2016, I founded Lone Conservative, a platform and community for conservative college students to write about conservative values, ideas, and policies. With many conservative students feeling alone on their overwhelmingly leftist campuses, creating a sense of community is one of Lone Conservative's primary goals. Lone Conservative has worked with over 300 contributors from 48 states to help develop the future of conservatism. Help us continue and support Lone Conservative by going to loneconservative.com and clicking donate to help more conservative students have a voice. Again, that's loneconservative.com. Thank you. And why did these kibbutzim fail? Um, because socialism doesn't work and can never work. <laughs> also, I think it's morally wrong. But yeah, it, just, it doesn't work because eventually people said, well, I want to have a, a nicer couch in my house. And they were not allowed to. So, okay. So kib- the kibbutzim culture failed. But Israel's still pretty socialist. Israel is still very socialist. Um, and again, as a capitalist, I think it's very, <laughs> very difficult. Uh, a lot of people in Israel from the right and from the left, and maybe we should address this a little bit later about the difference of uh, approach of right and left in Israel compared to America. A lot of people are saying that there's too much uh, intervention with the government and the, and the individual. Um, there's a lot of regulation that you really don't like and need. There are um, unions that you really don't like. The thing is that, I'll give you a few examples. Um, strikes is something that usually you have because you feel that the employee is being exploited by the employer. In Israel, the people who go on strike the most frequently are people who are giving you um, essential services. It can be train station, which is a governmental uh, company. It can be the electricity, and we only have one electricity uh, company in Israel, so you cannot go to the competitors. Now, if I'm the minister of finance and the electricity company says, I'm going to go on strike unless you give me $50 million, uh, I'm going to give them the money because otherwise I'll have to pay billions because they shut down the market. So what they also have is they have... um, Political affiliation, meaning if one sector wants to go on strike, all of the other sectors will join that uh, this specific uh, um, sector. So it's basically it's blackmailing the government, and we're paying it. Um, furthermore, the government is the number one employee in Israel. We have a gigantic government. Let's be fair. You can fire a third of, of the people who are working there and no one would ever notice. And I'm not exaggerating. And I know the people who work there uh, will pretty much say the same, but they still enjoy getting the salary. Um, so when we have national um, social security and we have a lot of stuff that make Israel a more socialist country. And you also have socialized healthcare and things like that. Healthcare, but yeah. you still have this really big startup culture. I mean, Israel has created some of the most, the biggest companies nowadays. They started in Israel and got sold to Microsoft or to Google or yeah. to whoever. Yeah. Um, so you have like the socialist origin, but you have this entrepreneurship. Do you know why? Why? Because there's no regulation for high tech in Israel. 
that's why we're doing so well in that field. Again, there's no exception when you have no one, you don't have a council who are getting paid by the government who are saying, this is a good app, yes, let's develop it, or this is a bad app, let's not develop it. You just have the market, and the market does so well in high-tech. Um, Israel is the third country in NASDAQ. Israel has more startup companies than all of the EU combined. We are doing fantastic. It also because we have no really um, good natural source, uh, resources, so we have to use our brains in order to produce stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it, the, that part of the market is not regulated, so people can really do stuff. We came up with ways, we came up with all these innovations that people said, I have a necessity, let's see how we can solve that problem that they have, and it worked. Well, there's no doubt that conservatism means something different to every different country. I mean, American conservatism is nowhere near... German conservatism or even Brazilian conservatism, which we talked about in one of my previous episodes. So what does conservatism mean to you? And how many people in Israel would actually label themselves as a conservative? Hmm. So it's really funny. To be a conservative in Israel is a new phenomenon. And it, that's kind of a contradiction because how can it be, you know, a new conservative? I'm not talking about neoconservative. I'm talking about people who are conservatives and it's new. When I went to law school at Hebrew U, um, the term was, you're a formalist, meaning I look at the text and I follow the text and I don't give... Uh, An originalist. Yes. Um, so that was the term that people used. So to say a conservative, it's fairly new. Um, but let's go back a little bit. America is a presidential democracy. Israel is a parliamentary democracy. That's one difference. The second difference is that in America, you ask yourself two questions about your politi political views. How much do you want the government in your pocket? How much do you want the government in your values? Libertarian, authoritarian, Democrat, Republican. Um, in Israel, we have three axes. We have um, diplomacy and security. That is one axe. Are you more hawkish? Do you want to use more force against um, terrorism? Do you believe Jews should live in Judea and Samaria? Or do you want to be more with the containment and do you want to um, negotiate land for peace? Um, the other X will be um, uh, social and economic issues, which is fairly close to America. Do you want more taxes and more uh, services, or you want less taxes and less services. And the third X is the identity of the state. Should Israel be more Jewish, not necessarily religious, but more Jewish in its characteristic or less Jewish in its characteristics? And when you have these three axes, it means that you have more combination. What do I mean by that? When we're talking about capitalism, you can have people who would define themselves as very progressive left-wingers, but they're very capitalistic because they don't like the way that the money um, is being spent by the government. Usually in Israel, when you're talking about right-wing and left-wing, you're talking about security. That's, that was the tendency in the past, I know, since Israel was created until the last decade. Today, it changed. it's beginning to change a little bit. So when we're talking about people in Israel who are conservatives, they have a different meaning. Now, one of the things that you would define, I think, when you're talking about conservative people all over the world is the value of tradition and uh, establishment that have come from uh, your past and the fact that you also need to think about the future, meaning you need to think about um, the actions that you're taking right now. Issues like family values um, are very different in Israel than in America, or the right to bear arms. For How instance. so for family values? Um, the Israeli, Israelis are a lot more tribal. Uh, people live close to their parents. Uh, the family is not just husband and wife and kids. It's also husband, wife, grandma um, <laughs> that uh, babysits the kids during the holidays. So it's a little bit different. We live closer to our parents. Um, it's very common for the... We actually wrote a paper about it in the thing that, that I work for about how grandmas in Israel play a role in babysitting the kids, <laughs> which is very different in America, I would assume. Um, 
the right to bear arms. I, th- I am a big supporter of the Second Amendment, and if I were an American, I would probably join the NRA. Um, but in Israel, it wouldn't make any sense. I, I have a gun in Israel. I carry a gun. But I carry it because I'm worried about terrorists. I'm not worried about the government, and I'm not worried about crime. We have a very low crime rate in Israel. We have terrorists, but that's in a specific area, but the crime rate is extremely low. Um, so I think that the Second Amendment is almost not relevant for Israel. If a cop is going to try and do something to me, I'm going to be like, hey, Shlomo, I know your mom works in the country. You cannot, you cannot do that. So it's a different concept. So I actually want to push you on that. So um, obviously the way Americans approach their government is so much different than the way Israelis approach their government. But there has been times in Israel where Israelis were very upset with their government, especially 2005 when they're pulling um, Jews out of the Gaza Strip. So I want to just like get more information about how Israelis view their own government. So I think that... Uh Always, the conservative side is more respectful for the government and has and even though if they didn't vote for the specific government, they say it's still my government. And in Israel, like other countries, the more progressive side likes to um, totally burn down the club if they disagree with the government. And I think that that is something you can definitely see today uh, when people talk about our uh, current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and they say, oh, he's not my prime minister because they disagree with his approach. Hashtag not my president, hashtag not my PM. Yeah, (laughs) and I'm like, yeah, definitely, he is, in my opinion, he's a wonderful prime minister. And I think that uh, even if there was a prime minister that I would not like, I would still say, but he is my prime minister. Um, So uh, I don't think, I I think it's very good that in the horrible incident of taking Jews out of their uh, homes in 2005, what people call the disengagement, I'm happy that people didn't have firearms because I think that would escalate into a very bad scenario. And I think Israel would have prevailed in this. Again, I'm, I'm against the whole move, but I think it's it's uh, not very likely that a group of people will be able to fight the government and win. Um, and again, the reason why you, you carry a gun is because you're worried about terrorists. You're not worried about the government. Even when you really resent what the government does, you go and you elect and you change the policy. So... Obviously, as a conservative, you said you'd support the Second Amendment in America, but not in Israel. So I want to ask, does conservatism and Zionism ever conflict with each other? Definitely, because you can say that Zionism is very revolutionary. And I think a conservative cannot be pro-revolution. <laughs> Conservatives should be pro-reform, but not revolutions. Um, so that on one hand. But on the other hand, people would, have say, people would say, yeah, but Zionism... Like I said, it's from the destruction of the Second Temple. It's just implementing the concept. Um, so I gave you the three axes in Israel. I think that when you're talking about being more hawkish or um, using more force when people are trying to murder you, when you have terrorists who are trying to attack you, I think that goes alongside with conservative values. Not just neoconservative, but conservative values, meaning you understand human nature. You're not trying to engineer humanity based on what you think you should do. Um, when you're talking about the... Um, uh, financial abilities of a country. You know, Herzl said that socialism is against the spirit of humanity and it's against the spirit of Jews in particular because that's just not how the world works. And again, I think that's very... I mean, he didn't win. Eventually, uh, practical Zionism win when it came to the creation of Israel. But I think that that approach is very realistic. I think that socialism in its core, has something against the human value. It's very nice when you're a kid and you say, yeah, let's all, you know, contribute, but it doesn't work. I also think, again, it's morally wrong. Um, And when it comes to the Jewish identity, I think that's extremely conservative because it means that we like to rely on our past. I'm very Edmund Burke in that sense. I think that you cannot ignore 
establishments and um, organizations that have been there for many years. And we're not talking about the non-for-profit. I'm talking about the concept of how you treat your grandma or how you treat your, your um, elderly. I think that, that is something that Judaism uh, definitely has a uh, focus on. And that is something that Zionism has a focus on. So when you label yourself a conservative in Israel, like you, you ran for Knesset, you're an author, you you work, you are a deputy director at a policy institute. Mm-hmm. But when you label yourself a conservative, do people automatically associate that with right wing and kind of think you're crazy because not many people label themselves as 100%. that? 100%. I was once on a TV show and during the break time, one of the women there said some sort of a comment and I said, well, that doesn't make sense to me. She, so she said, oh, you're a conservative. Why am I wasting my time talking to you? Um, so I, yeah, I do, I do get this, but you don't have to be conservative and right wing. You can be right wing and not conservative. You can be a capitalist and a left winger. It doesn't always make sense um, in Israel, I know, for Americans to understand, but conservatives are a small group of Israel, um, of the Israeli society. We actually had a conference um, about uh, four months ago. We had our first it's like the a tiny version of CPEC, I guess. It was the first conservative conference in Israel. It was with uh, about maybe 2,000 attendees. Attendees? Attendees. Attendees. Um, and we talked about what is conservative values in Israel. What does it even mean? So I'll give you one thing that's very clear, that's very different between Israel and America. Judicial activism. Um, I, will adapt, I will adopt in both of my hands the Murbury versus Madison case because there you had judicial activism, but um, what they said is that you, you're supposed to cancel something if it's with a contradiction to the constitution. Israel does not have a constitution, and I understand democracy as elected representatives. And sometimes in Israel, the Supreme Court will cancel a law or basically cancel a policy done by the government, and I'm like, who chose you? I, I didn't vote for you. How do they get into the Supreme Court? How do, how do the judges get into the Supreme Court? They nominate themselves, basically, which is also an issue. So in my the party that I ran with last time, the suggestion was that um, elected officials will, will decide who can be nominated as a judge. And people say, oh, my God, that's fascism. Like, no, that's what you have in America. You, you have politicians <laughs> nominate judges. I mean, it doesn't, I don't think it takes away the independent. But if they want to have a different model, that's also fine. But what you have right now is that the judges... Basically, they had an automatic veto on a committee that chooses who are the next judges. So they would always get who they wanted until the, until the last um, government. They would nominate themselves. So for decades, judges, you cannot touch your salary. You cannot fire them. Um, they, they, uh, there's like 50-something uh, people who are from the same family. I mean, not nothing. There's no accountability at there's all. There's zero accountability. Um, when I say the same family, I'm not saying it's one family. I'm saying that this guy's daughter works for this judge, this guy's son works for that judge. And that's very problematic in my opinion. And for some reason, people don't understand that the concept of having these judges decide what is good and bad for me, that's undemocratic. It might be smart, maybe, I'm not sure, but it's not democratic. The concept of democracy is that the people decide and the left, for some reason, that always like to say that they're more democratic and that they care about the democratic values, are actually pushing for tyranny in that sense. Well, you're referencing the left in Israel, but I think it's important to talk about the left in Israel compared to the American left. Um, and you've encountered the American left, which we'll get to, but how are they different and how are they similar? So, in a nutshell, I would say that the American left is way more radical and way more left. Um, I, and I'm trying to use uh, my words cautiously because I don't want to use uh, 
too harsh words, but I think that the American left just lost it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I don't really understand the values that it represents. Israeli left is very collectivist, meaning it has social values. It believes in equality. That's the number one value that they hold. And in their mind, they're promoting democracy. They're against corruption. They're trying to help the poor. And they're trying to make sure that uh, there's gender equality and so on and so forth. These are all good values. I just don't think that the way that they're trying to promote it is a good way. I think their economic um, uh, suggestions are horrible for the Israeli economy. <laughs> and I think that they're very naive when it comes to how they uh, see our enemies, uh, the, the terrorists who are now in control in Judea and Samaria and Gaza. Um, but okay, but they're, they're still Zionists. They still care for Israel. They're still, we still share the same plate. We're still on the same table. I think that the uh, progressive side in America um, has lost the ability to have a discourse. And I think that basically uh, left, far left in America is in a moral regression because if you're not able to have a discourse with someone, if you're not able to have a conversation and share opinions, why do you think you're better? You're really worse. You're actually very close-minded. The fact that, you know, I, I like to judge people by what they say and what they do. And in my opinion, that makes me morally progressive. When the left in America um, basically decides that a person is good or bad based on their ethnicity, gender, or something like that, they're actually in a moral regression. They're, they, we, they went backwards in history. Now, you have encountered the American left personally. Uh, you sometimes speak in college campuses, and you had one incident that was quite tense. My only purpose today is that this event is shut down. You have turned Palestine into a land of prostitutes, rapists, and child molesters. How many women have you raped? How many children have you raped? What do you want from me? Are you willing to speak to me? No. I just want you to shut up and get out. And that's your freedom and free world. Yeah. All right, great. So your free world is to kick me out of here. No, it's just to keep kick you out of this room for this night. And if I send you to another room, will you kick me out of this room? Yes. Okay, thank you very much for joining me. Until you get out of every single... And so tell us what happened in that room. What did it feel like to come to this American university? You're, you're trying to speak to students about Israel, and it exploded. Why? So actually, it happened very often. Um, it, this one incident, I just I got on stage, and this person was trying to heckle me. And he said, how many women have you raped? How many children have you raped? You're a child molester. Uh, he's never met me before. These are very uh, severe accusations. And he didn't let me respond. I said, you know, this is a democracy. You let the defendant defend himself. That's, that's the concept. Let me respond. He didn't really want to hear what I have to say. And that wasn't very um, rare. Actually, it happened many times. I think sometimes people here like to vilify Israel. Uh, here I mean in America. They like to vilify Israel. Uh, they like to, again, pretend that they're on the right side of history. The state of Israel is definitely doing a lot better than the Arabs living in Gaza or the Arabs living in Judea and Samaria. So they go with the underdog. They don't care about the facts, and they just like to. Um, it's like the it's the cool thing to do. You you recycle, you drive a hybrid car, and you bash Israel. That's how you know that you're okay. Um, it felt very, on one hand, very uncomfortable. It's not nice to be uh, accused of such things. On the other hand, I have to be honest. This is a college student. He has no idea what I've gone through in my life. Um, at the end of the day, I, I have. He's touring my conflict. 
And these are people who are touring my conflict. They went on Wikipedia, they read something, they said, oh, I'm an expert in Israel because you know, I, I took a class in the Middle East, so now I can tell you exactly you've done this and this and that. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I'm, I'm just an Israeli who's lived there my whole life. <laughs> I had people that I know that were murdered by terrorists. You probably know more about me than my conflict. So one final question. You are trying to push conservatism in Israel. And one way you're doing this is with the Kohelet Forum. So mm-hmm. what exactly is the Kohelet Forum doing? Kohelet Policy Forum is a think tank that believes in three things. One, that Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. Two, we want to have better sovereignty. Sovereignty not regarding Judea and Samaria. Sovereignty means that we believe that democracy is elected representatives and not bureaucrats. And three, we want to promote more individual freedoms, meaning less government regulation, more freedom for the individual, which in my opinion is a core value for conservative thought. Um, We do this by um, writing policy papers. These policy papers we give to different members of Knesset, different ministers in Israel. Knesset is the Israeli parliament. um, And we try to promote our policies. Uh, We also have conferences. We also try to teach people. You know, I mentioned Edmund Burke or Alexis de Tocqueville uh, or the Federalist Papers. These are stuff that Israelis never read. Um, You don't read this in high school in Israel. You don't learn about these uh, thinkers at the university. And I think that's a shame because if you want to really enlighten yourself, then you should also hear from people who have a different perspective, maybe a more conservative perspective. Um, So we also have these classes where we try to teach people and let them know of about other, uh, we have an Adam Smith Society uh, that Coelet started. Uh, so you are relying pretty heavily on texts that are very big in American conservatism. Yes, 100%. And I'll tell you something else. Um, America was very fortunate to have the Federalist Papers. We don't have a Federalist Paper in Israel yet. Yeah. We are still, we are still, so we're no longer a young country. We've been here for 72 years, and let's hope that we will stay there forever. But we still don't have a constitution, and I'm very pro-constitution. I think constitution is, um, doesn't matter if it's a presidential or a parliamentary system, it's very good to have because that represents the basic understanding of the society. But we still haven't figured out what is the um, relationship between the individual and the state, between this, the uh, different branches, the legislative, exec- executive, and uh, judicial branch, and how much power do you want to have in the municipality level? Because America is uh, basically it's a federation. Israel is not a federation, and I don't think it should be. But I definitely believe that we should have more power in the municipality, which is like equivalent to the state versus the federal, because that means that the people can control their lives as much as possible. That's also a conservative value, that you, you decide on your life. You don't give all the power to the government that will uh, decide on what you should eat and when you should sleep. In. It sounds very funny, but when, you, when Israel was created in the 50s, basically, even if you had money, you weren't able to buy more than a certain amount of eggs. So the government really not just went into your pocket, they went into your um, kitchen. Um, So these are things that we try to promote um, to make sure that people learn about it. We are definitely basing some of our information about, uh, from it, uh, from American thinkers, not just. Edmund Burke, by the way, was an American thinker, but but that's just one example. We also use um, texts that were written by um, Jewish thinkers and Israeli thinkers. But it's, again, it's a phenomenon that's growing in Israel. The discourse about conservative values in Israel, it's a new phenomenon. Usually all of the bad stuff that uh, you guys have in America, they get to Israel about 10 or uh, 15 years later. So <laughs> I think we're going to have a lot of weird protests um, in Israel a couple of years uh, from now. But 
the, the concept that we're trying to develop, it's a new concept. And I think it's still a discourse that we have to, uh, to take. I'll give you one last example. I want a strong government. I want a very small government. I hate the fact that we have all these different ministers. I don't, I don't think we need them. But I want a, a strong government. I want that if my government decides that it can do something, then it should execute it. Ron Barrio Shafat, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. The Cassie Dillon Show is a lone conservative production. It is produced by Tony Kinnett, David Zielinski, Sebastian Thorman, and Keegan Nazari. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case. Thank you.